Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This file is being recorded for the February 2024 edition of Socialism for All, and it's an audiobook and discussion of three short pieces by Earl Browder concerning class collaboration. If you like this video, please click like and subscribe, and consider supporting on Patreon or Buy Me a Coffee at patreon.com slash socialismforall or buymeacoffee.com slash socialismforall. There are links to Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee in the video description. So recently on the channel, we started a mini-series on the topic of first-wave U.S. anti-revisionism, which was directed against the phenomenon known as Browderism. Browderism was named after Earl Browder, the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the USA, and again, the author of the works that we're going to be doing in this video. So the reason that we're including these early pieces by Browder in the anti-Browderism video is to demonstrate that once upon a time, the younger Browder actually knew what he was doing, and the revisionist turn happened in the 40s. So it's basically to compare and contrast that. So there's a little subset or mini-series within a mini-series here that I'm terming the Browder files, and it's intended to go as follows. We just did fascism in the United States. Then these three, the campaign for class collaboration, the economics of class collaboration, and more class collaboration bunk, all from 1924, January, March, and May, respectively. I think that after that, I may also include, it's a little bit on the longer side, but I may also include the meaning of social fascism in the early 1930s. And then we'll do some of the pieces after Browder had his major revisionist turn, 1943 and 1944. So these were pieces like The Future of the Anglo-Soviet American Coalition, Tehran and America, Perspectives and Tasks, Shall the Communist Party Change Its Name, and The Road Ahead to Victory and Lasting Peace. Once we have so reviewed some of the substance that made up Browderism, we will then get into some of Browder's main critics, particularly William Z. Foster. And then beyond that, even some of the critics of Foster who alleged that the reconstituted post-Browder CPUSA didn't go far enough, that it was still doing Browderism without Browder, and so on. But for now, let's pick up, continuing with Browder's early writings, three pieces against class collaborationism. The first is The Campaign for Class Collaboration, January 1924, thanks to the Marxist Internet Archive for hosting this and thousands of other free Marxist texts. Since the days when Mark Hanna organized his labor lieutenants into the Civic Federation, collaboration with the capitalist class, the policy of Samuel Gompers in other words, has been the settled policy of the governing circles in the American Federation of Labor, or AFL. The Civic Federation made an institution of the idea and entrenched it within the highest circles of the labor movement. The baneful effects upon the development of trade unionism is a subject worthy of the efforts of a good historian. The militant sections of the labor movement revolted against it, to the extent that such an organization as the United Mine Workers wrote a special law into its constitution prohibiting any officer of the union to belong to the Civic Federation. Any history of the American labor movement that does not deal fully with that body will neglect one of the determining factors, the influence of which is hard for the uninitiated to realize. Never has there been in the past, however, such an organized drive to establish collaboration with the capitalists as that conducted today in the AFL. All the accumulating forces of reaction in the bureaucratic leadership of the unions seem to have been fused into a concerted movement all along the line to bind the labor movement hand and foot to capitalism and its institutions. The outstanding features of the resulting campaign for class collaboration are 1. Revival of insurance as the dominant union function. 2. The epidemic of labor banks. 3. The Johnston Cooperation Scheme for making the unions into efficient bureaus for capitalist production. And 4. 
the program of Gompers and Berry at the Portland Convention of the AFL. Trade Unionism versus Insurance Business Insurance departments in the unions have been an established feature from the beginning of the movement. It has been many years, however, since they have occupied more than an incidental position. They have been accepted as valuable auxiliaries to the unions, but not as the prime reason for the union's existence. This has been changed in a group of the most important unions in America, however, within the past year. The railroad shop unions, with their disastrous strike dragging along and their entire fighting front broken up by the incompetence of their leaders, found the membership leaving the unions by tens of thousands. Instead of meeting the threatening situation by a renewed militancy and a program of solidarity, the officialdom resurrected the insurance society features as the basis for their appeal to the membership to rally to the unions. Insurance became the watchword of the union organizers on the railroads. This signified the abandonment of the struggle. It was the beginning of the movement by the trade union leaders toward open collaboration with the employers. It threw a cold, wet blanket upon the remaining enthusiasm in the rank and file. It was the signal of surrender, and the membership understood it as such. The effect upon the railroad shop unions was a disintegrating one. The effort to rebuild the unions as insurance societies brought no results. The workers would have nothing of it. Seeing their very jobs threatened by the loss of per capita tax, the officials frantically began to cast about for schemes to bolster up their failing financial resources and to figure out measures for strengthening their grip on the organizations. One of the things that came to hand for that purpose was the idea of labor banks. Wildcat Banking Schemes An authority on labor banking made the statement that 15 labor banks are now operating in the United States with a capital of $50 million and that 10 more are scheduled to begin operations within a few months. The figures give some idea of the craze for labor banks that is sweeping the official circles. There are two distinct elements in the labor banking situation that must be carefully distinguished. First are those who, feeling secure in the strength of their organizations, felt that they could venture into the field of handling the finances of their organization and membership, and make them the center of a profitable banking business without changing the essential functioning of their organizations. The second group consists of those who felt the ground slipping under their feet and grasped at the idea of labor banks as a means of making an alliance with capitalistic interests, and at the same time, tying up the affairs of the union so completely that they could not be removed from office without disastrous consequences. The first group started the labor bank idea as an auxiliary to the union. The second joined the movement as a means of keeping hold of their jobs. It is not clear that banking is a proper function of labor unions if their primary objects are not to be handicapped. Leaving aside that question, there is a vast difference between labor banks organized as auxiliaries and labor banks organized to give a new economic foundation to bankrupt unions. The first group consists of the locomotive engineers and the amalgamated clothing workers. The engineers are a very conservative organization, while the clothing workers are radical. The engineers could launch a successful bank because of the comparative security of their membership, being a key craft with great strategic power and a conservative tradition. Their bank did not necessarily affect the established functions of the union, although it probably has strengthened its conservative tendencies. The amalgamated clothing workers, because it is more of a militant body compared with American unions generally, and has gained more benefits comparatively for its members, did not take up the labor bank idea from weakness, but because they felt strong enough to handle it. Their bank undoubtedly strengthened the conservative tendencies within the union. 
The second group of labor banks, however, do not clearly have such a character in any instance, and in many cases they are definitely designed to bolster up a failing officialdom. That is their essential characteristic. They are instruments of class collaboration. They remove the unions further from the rank and file. They enormously increase the power of the bankrupt officials. They lay the unions helpless before the financial interests. They have no independent strength of their own at all. Their makeshift expedients to lengthen the tenure of office of union leaders unable to make good in the wage and hour struggle. They constitute a menace to the labor movement, and they are part and parcel of the campaign for class collaboration in the American unions. The Johnston Cooperation Scheme But insurance and banking are mild measures in contrast to the drastic proposals of William H. Johnson, president of the International Association of Machinists. He is installing a system whereby the unions become direct agents of the employers in all fundamental questions. He boasts that when his cooperation is established, not a railroad executive will ever again wish to get rid of the unions. A sorry sort of boast, it would seem, which will mean, if true, that the workers will be the ones who wish to rid themselves of the monstrosity that Johnston would impose upon them. The Johnston scheme is already being touted as a great success on the B&O Railroad, where it is being tried out. Quote, the idea underlying our service to the Baltimore and Ohio, said Mr. Johnston, may be compared to the idea which underlies the engineering services extended to railroads by large supply corporations which have contracts with these railroads to furnish, let's say, arch brick, superheaters, stokers, or lubricating oils, unquote. The union, in short, is to become a supply corporation to the railroad companies, engaged in the business of selling labor, just as another corporation may sell lubricants. It will compete in the market like any commodity-selling organization, and engage to deliver more work for less cost than non-union labor can deliver. That is the essence of the scheme. Comment, why would any worker want to join that? Continuing. Industrial Democracy a la Gompers at the Portland Convention of the AFL, the final official blessings were given to the whole drive for systematic collaboration with the capitalists. Samuel Gompers, John L. Lewis, and Major Berry were the spokesmen, the first with his proclamation for, quote, industrial democracy, the second with the program of war upon the militants, and the third with his notorious four points. Gompers' statement is a suave and oily repudiation of the trade union struggle, with the kernel of meaning hidden beneath a coating of soft words. Barry's four points are a bold and brutal statement that the unions are to be subordinated to the claims of capitalist private property. Comment, see the last text, Fascism in the United States, for more on that. Continuing, fresh from battle in New York, where Barry had crushed the pressman strike on the daily newspapers, this doughty American legionist walked into the AFL convention, where he was hailed as a conquering hero. What was the meaning of Barry's acts in New York and the stormy enthusiasm of his welcome at Portland? Barry quickly disclosed it. He spoke, and the keynote of his speech was this, quote, We stand for four great principles governing industry. These are the ownership of property, an adequate return on investment, an adequate sum allowed industry for the matter of deterioration, and that all workers, including managers, get proper compensation for what they put into industry, unquote. John L. Lewis, president of the United Mine Workers, was another keynote speaker in this official gathering of the collaborators with the employing class. Speaking after a period when the UMW of A had found its very existence threatened by the employers, the whole speech of Lewis was an appeal for the official program of collaboration. Lewis boasted of his destruction of the Kansas Union District 14 and the expulsion of Howitt. 
He prided himself upon assisting the British Empire Steel Corporation to break the strike in Nova Scotia on the ground of sacredness of contracts, ignoring the fact that even his sacred contract was not violated there. He was another living symbol, through his obedience to the orders of BESCO in Nova Scotia, of the newly consolidated program of collaboration. Gomper's manifesto is more discreet than the utterances of his roughneck lieutenants, but its meaning is just as definite. A few quotations will outline the entire policy and show how it links together all these various chains in the campaign for the complete subordination of the unions to capitalism. The following are key sentences from the manifesto. Quote, we feel that the hour has struck for a pronouncement of the aims of labor that shall more nearly express the full implications of trade unionism than has been yet undertaken. The close of the war, World War I, marked for us a turning point in human relations and threw into bold relief the inadequacy of existing forms and institutions. Through the muddling conflict of groups, editors note workers versus capitalists, so not really groups but classes, who still find it impossible to come together in cooperation, we must look to a future that must have its foundation upon cooperation and collaboration. Trade unionism must lead the way, even at the cost of being branded as reactionary, or actually being reactionary, unquote. Masses swing to left, officialdom to right. The superficial observer of events in the labor movement judges from the facts above recited, and countless others of a similar nature, that the labor movement is becoming more and more reactionary, that the masses are being brought under the control of capitalism more completely than ever before. Such a judgment is mistaken indeed, for the very opposite is true. The basic reason for this concerted swing to the right of the officialdom, for this studied and systematic cooperation with all the varying forces and institutions of capitalism, is the fact that the masses are swinging to the left, are being disillusioned, are becoming radical. The reactionary officialdom cannot go along with the broad, sweeping radicalization of the masses without making a clean break with their peaceful past. They are either corrupt agents of capitalism or are timid bureaucrats seeking nothing but a peaceful office life with a secure salary. In either case, their reaction toward the seething rank-and-file unrest is one of fear and retreat to the protecting arms of the masters, the capitalist employers. That the collaboration schemes will prove destructive of trade unionism, there is no question, but that it will solve any of the fundamental problems of the present industrial order only the politically feeble-minded can believe. The collaboration scheme is bound to fail as surely as water must seek its lowest level. In the meantime, it must be combated as the most dangerous and insidious enemy of the working class, and the one which will cost the greatest in working class sweat and blood to overcome. On now to the second piece, Economics of Class Collaboration, March 1924. Quote, Intellectual poison for the workers is the only judgment possible on the book The Control of Wages recently issued by the Workers' Education Bureau and written by Walton Hamilton and Stacey May. Cleverly written and avoiding much of the dry and humorless style usual in such books, the philosophy of class collaboration that it contains is all the more dangerous to the labor movement. It bears the same relation to trade union theory that the collaboration schemes of William H. Johnston and Company bear to trade union practice. It amounts in substance to an elaborate scheme of justification in the language of economic science for the prostitution of labor unionism to the function of efficient auxiliaries to capitalism. The hope is held out as bait upon the class collaboration hook that by these means the labor unions may raise the prevailing standard of wages. Production and Wages 
The fundamental thesis of Hamilton and May is contained in the following words, quote, It will be well to remember that there are only two ways in which the material welfare of the laborer can be increased. One is at the expense of other groups in the community. The other is through an increase of the wealth out of which all income is paid. The first of these has very definite limits. If it is overdone, it defeats its own end. The second of these, an attempt to get more out of resources through increased efficiency and technical improvements, has flexible limits, unquote. Throughout the book, grave warnings of disaster and disappointment are given to those workers who would increase wages at the expense of property incomes, while the smooth, broad road to comfort and affluence for all workers is described in proposals for increasing the product of industry. Comment. So, in other words, a rising tide lifts all boats, that old canard. Continuing, the class struggle is anathema. The key to wages is class collaboration, such as the message of the Workers' Education Bureau and its textbook on wages. It is interesting to note the similarity between these theories and those which have brought disaster to the German labor movement, when, at the close of the war, German labor had the opportunity to establish a real control of wages by means of militant class struggle and subordination of the capitalist class, it was lured away by the siren song of, first we must re-establish the forces of production. Under the leadership of the class collaborationists, the Social Democratic Party, and trade union officialdom, the German workers subordinated themselves to the task of repairing the capitalist system, increasing production, and improving the technique of industry. The present mass starvation of the German working class is the direct outcome of this policy. Its effects in America can differ only in degree. Some disconcerting facts. What is the answer of American experience to the question of whether increased production is a source of increased wages? Hamilton and May themselves give figures which belie the conclusions of their argument. Production increased in the United States from 1899 to 1920 by approximately 30% per capita. But during the same period, real wages, instead of increasing by any part of the increased production, actually decreased to an extent variously estimated at from 10% to 30%. It is hard to obtain any comfort for the class collaborationists from these stubborn facts. What is American experience to say as to the effectiveness of improved industrial technique in raising wage rates? According to the theory of Hamilton and May, the most highly organized and mechanized industries should pay the highest wages. A casual comparison between wages in the steel industry, where organization and the machine process are developed to a high degree, with those in the building industry, which, although rapidly undergoing the same transformation, is still for various reasons far behind steel, shows that the collaborationist theory is not supported by the existing facts. A bulletin of the Bureau of Labor Statistics, December 1923, shows the average wage of workers in the steel industry, for one particular week, to be approximately $5 per day while the Monthly Labor Review of the same Bureau, for December 1923, shows the wage rates in the building trades for all the large cities, which together comprise the bulk of the building workers, to range from $8 to $13 per day. It is a matter of common knowledge that they enjoy infinitely better working conditions, have more control of their jobs, etc. The building trades workers have shorter hours and receive higher wages than do the workers in the steel industry. Improved technique has not been a source of increased wages. Comment, if you want more on this topic, go back to Marx's value, price, and profit from like the 1860s. Very similar debate. Continuing, the above facts and arguments are convincing testimony that increased production and development of technique have no tendency to increase wages. 
it might be argued with more plausibility that the opposite of the collaborationist theory is true. Either statement of the case, however, ignores the fundamental factors that determine wages, both as discovered by theoretical analysis and direct observation. It is as incorrect for the workers to expect increased wages by increased output as it would be for them to go upon the opposite theory and attempt to limit production and prevent technical progress for the purpose of increasing wages. Effects of Collaboration Upon the labor movement, the effect of the collaborationist theory is to undermine and destroy what measure of control the workers have over wages. A classical example of this is seen in the scheme of William H. Johnston, president of the Machinists' Union, now being peddled to the railroad corporations of the country, by which the labor organizations are to abandon all struggle with the companies, become efficiency bureaus, and make the employers love them. Two positive results are achieved by such surrender to class collaboration. One, the employers are thus won to affectionate regard for the unions because it saves them the trouble of creating company unions for the same purpose. And two, the reactionary officials of the unions avoid unpleasant struggles, preserve their easy jobs and comfortable salaries, and become, quote, respectable citizens. But if these class collaboration theories, together with the vicious practices that naturally flow from them, serve the interests of the employing class and the union bureaucracy, their effect upon the working class is disastrous. Its fighting spirit, as well as its ability to put up an effective fight, are gradually and subtly undermined. The unions are transformed, step by step, into production departments, and the authority of capitalist administration begins to reach over from the workshop into the union hall. Labor, as an independent power, fighting the encroachments of predatory capitalism and jealously protecting the interests of the workers, is eliminated from industry. Class collaboration is fatal to militant labor organization. Not only does this pernicious doctrine sap the strength of the trade unions, but at the same time, it increases the fighting power of the employers. How ridiculous it is to tell the workers that their wages are to be increased through improvements in the techniques of production, when all about them they see that it is precisely the most highly mechanized industries that have eliminated all effective labor unionism and used the higher technique to intensify the exploitation of the workers. The Steel Trust is a classical example, not to speak of the Textile Trust, the automobile combines, the rubber industry, and others. Every advance in the technique of industry is accompanied by concentration of capital, which is immediately translated into more militant and effective warfare upon the workers' organizations. The Labor Market a pitiful attempt to make class collaboration policies appear to be sound in economic theory was made by William H. Johnston in his speech before a gathering of railroad executives in St. Louis last fall. His statement that, quote, the idea underlying our service may be compared to the idea which underlies the engineering service extended to the railroads by large supply corporations, which have contracts with these railroads to furnish, let's say, arch brick, superheaters, stokers, or lubricating oil, is a clumsy attempt to hook his vicious scheme up with current notions of economics. It attempts to make class collaboration appear as good selling tactics on the labor market, but the argument fails as miserably as do the others. Quoting Marx from Wage, Labor, and Capital, wages are determined by the same law which regulates the price of any other commodity. Unquote. The principle is elaborately worked out in capital, being a fundamental of the Marxian theory of value. Quote, the price of a commodity is determined by its cost of production, which is the same thing as its determination by the duration of the labor required for its manufacture. Unquote. 
In the case of the particular commodity labor power, the price, also known as a wage, is determined by the amount of labor required to produce and reproduce it. This is subject to variation from the barest subsistence, or less, to the comparative comfort of small sections of workers according to the technical requirements of the labor process, the immediate supply and demand, the general level of technology, etc., but above all, according to the organized social and industrial power of the workers to withhold their labor power from the market until they receive a certain standard of living. Workers desiring to go more fully into the Marxian theory of wages should read Capital, Volume 1, Chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, as well as Chapters 1, 2, 3, 6, and following index references to wages through Volumes 2 and 3. The only effective point of attack for the workers in their efforts to control wages is thus clearly seen to be their organized power, used in struggle with the employers. To attempt to find, in the examination of labor power as a commodity, any justification for the Johnston scheme of increasing the productivity of labor power as a policy for the raising of wages is absurd. To propose to increase the price of labor power by increasing its productivity, which in turn increases the available supply in relation to the demand of industry, while the control of the supply by its sellers is weakened, such a proposition is a caricature of economic theory that scarcely requires refutation. When the collaborationists point out that wage rates are generally higher in those countries with a highly developed machine industry than in countries where more primitive methods prevail, they think that they have scored a smashing argument that labor can afford to lead in the popular drive for more production. No such conclusion is warranted by an examination of the matter. Higher wages in countries of machine production, as compared with countries of handicraft industry, have the same meaning, as far as wages and their control go, as the figures for equipment repairs and maintenance. Both items are higher in the one country than in the other, and for the same reason. Maintenance costs are higher for a steam engine than for a handloom, and the labor maintenance cost is higher for a steam engine operator than for a handloom operator. Neither has any necessary relation to the volume of production. Both are incidental to the technical requirements of the particular industry, and both decrease pro rata with the increase of production upon a given level of technical culture in the absence of compensating factors. Class struggle, the only way. Control of wages is indeed a vital problem to the working class, but unfortunately there is no broad, well-lighted boulevard that leads the workers to that much-desired goal. It can be reached only by organization and struggle. All the attempts of the apostles of class peace, class collaboration, and social reformism to lead the workers away from the inevitable fight are, in result if not an in intention, gross betrayals of the interests of the working class. Control of wages is to be obtained only through control of the whole process of production, which in turn calls for the control of government. Every specific wage is to be increased only by organization and struggle in the shops. The general wage is to be controlled only through the widest political organization and struggle of the whole working class. Class struggle, and not class collaboration, leads to the emancipation of the toiling masses. And now the third article, More Class Collaboration Bunk, from May 1924. Latest recruits to the advocates of collaboration of the working class with capitalism, according to the scheme of William H. Johnston of the Machinists' Union, are the erstwhile intercollegiate socialists, now the Industrial Democrats, who publish an organ called Labor Age. The group consists of well-intentioned, 
educated, and more or less religious young men and women from the middle class who are quite determined, come what may, that labor shall be elevated, made self-respecting, given some control, and generally brought up to their own high level of culture. It would be ungenerous not to preface a cold-blooded examination of the objective functions of such groups as that gathered about the labor age with an appreciation of their good intentions. They mean well. They are overflowing with love for their oppressed fellow men. They are bursting with desire to help the world out of a bad fix. Many of them are admirable persons, generous to a fault, keenly intelligent within specialized fields, and overall quite pleasing folk with whom to spend an idle hour or to recommend a deed of personal kindliness. Unfortunately, however, the actual life of the world runs along another plane entirely from that inhabited by this middle-class intelligentsia, with the result that, entering into practical affairs of the labor movement, these advocates of industrial democracy become tools of the most sinister influences at work within the trade unions of America today. This is glaringly illustrated in the issue of Labor Age for March, which is devoted to eulogizing Johnston's scheme for turning the unions over to the bosses, daubing it over with the pink paint of, quote, workers' participation in management, to make it more attractive, or, to use another metaphor, coating the poisonous pill of class collaboration with sugary arguments of industrial democracy. The result upon those immature minds unable to pierce through to reality is complete confusion, delivering them helpless before the agents of capitalism, the official bureaucracy of the trade unions. Enemies of Amalgamation Amalgamation of our ridiculously divided craft unions into strong industrial organizations is a basic necessity for the labor movement. Comment here, there's a big difference between trade or craft unionism and industrial unionism. For a great overview of these differences, we have some audiobooks on the channel by Eugene Debs, co-founder of the IWW and later a socialist candidate for president. Basically, trade or craft unionism organizes workers by their specific trade or craft, their job. But this is an older form of organizing which the capitalists by the early 1900s had already figured out how to set against itself. Industrial unionism doesn't organize workers just by their job, but by the industry that they're in. So basically it combines workers across an entire industry, putting together workers of different kinds of jobs. This is a more advanced form of organizing, which is much more difficult to break. Again, check out the Eugene Debs audiobooks on that topic. Continuing, the class collaboration movement is the deadly enemy of amalgamation. Labor age, supposedly favorable to amalgamation, even though it is but a few months since it printed amalgamation on its cover in the form of a big question mark, indicating serious doubt of the matter, itself carries the evidence of hostility to amalgamation on the part of the collaboration scheme. In an article by O.S. Beyer, Technical High Priest of the Movement, we find the contemptuous expression, quote, the new policy of cooperation automatically brings with it the remedy for these conditions which your railroad amalgamationists maintain can only be realized when everything has been soundly amalgamated, whatever that may mean, unquote. This is not an isolated instance. It sounds the key to the entire collaboration propaganda. Every trade union official working among the railroad and metal trades unions for the adoption of Johnston's scheme is at the same time working night and day to choke out the growing demand for amalgamation of the unions along industrial lines. Always when the workers demand stronger organization, more militant policies, more power for the working class, the answer is being made in terms of the collaboration scheme. Quote, 
Forget about amalgamation, whatever that is. Get to work cooperating with the bosses, eliminating wastes, boosting profits, and then the boss will fix you up without a struggle. Unquote. Wink, wink. It is the classical Gomper's policy with a new dress. It is the repudiation of unionism, of the class struggle. Not by accident was the official blessing of Gomper's family of labor grand dukes given to it at Portland last year, while the other outstanding event was the expulsion of Bill Dunn, because he, as a communist, castigated the spineless servility of the officialdom to the capitalist class. The whole scheme of collaboration with the capitalists involves struggle against the militant rank and file. When the AFL officially declared for such collaboration, it was but the logical next step to declare war against the militants and throw Dunn out. When Johnston inaugurated the BNO plan, he laid the basis for the campaign of expulsions he is now beginning in the machinists' union against the advocates of amalgamation. The Workers' Control Camouflage not only is the Johnston scheme in deadly hostility to amalgamation, it is also death to such unionism as we have now. Under the false coloring of workers' control, even the weak craft unions are being tied hand and foot, are being rendered incapable of any effective action to protect the workers. The union machinery is being turned entirely into an organ for helping the bosses to make greater profits. Better wages and working conditions are to come, quote, as the good results of the idea are shown. Which is to say that when the railroads have cashed in a few billions of dollars extra profit, they may, if they see fit, kindly drop a few hundred thousand to their faithful servants. Quote, if labor hopes to get control of industry, it must learn how to conduct management as a group. This gives the opportunity, unquote. Thus does labor age crushingly answer the communist criticism of collaboration. Yes, labor must learn to manage industry, but how? Your answer, dear democratic children, does not answer. Because you have twisted the problem exactly hind end too, you have headed yourself straight into the capitalist camp. The only correct statement of the problem of workers' control is, if labor hopes to learn how to conduct management as a group, it must get control of industry. The way to learn management is to manage. To manage presupposes first control, and the only way to control is to build up strong and powerful industrial unions closely united with a powerful and militant political organization. The pitiful control the collaborationists propose works in the opposite direction, eating the heart out of unionism. Corrupting the Progressives it would hardly be worthwhile to give special attention to labor age, the arguments of which are mostly echoes of the official propaganda, but for the article therein by E.J. Lever. Brother Lever is a progressive who, in the past, has stood staunchly for amalgamation. Now, he has swallowed the collaboration bait, but is busy trying to reconcile it with a, quote, militant program and with amalgamation. Fire has aroused Lever's creative instinct, with the result that capitalist control is forgotten. Lever is already dreaming that he works under a proletarian system, where the problem is no longer one of struggle against the capitalist class, but of building up the industries by the workers. There is no doubt that the engineer buyer would be a very valuable man for the railroad workers, were they actually in control of the railroads, for instance in Russia. But the socialist union politician buyer is a very corrupting influence for the railroad workers in America, where the workers are only taking the first feeble steps toward power. Corruption is the only word that describes a process that transforms Brother Lever, militant progressive and advocate of amalgamation, into apologist for the poisonous collaboration scheme of William H. Johnston. 
Do you know, Brother Lever, that the fascist movement in Italy began to come to power at the moment when the Italian unions gave up militant struggle for a promise of factory committees whereby they should learn the technique and management of industry? Where are the Italian workers today? The German unions gave up the revolution for the equivalent of the Johnston scheme, but on a vaster scale, the Arbeitsgemeinschaften. But today their unions are destroyed, and even the Arbeitsgemeinschaften are taken away. More than a year ago, the German workers had become so disillusioned that they voted over the opposition of the entire officialdom to withdraw from participation in the class collaboration scheme. These were social democratic workmen, not communists. And do you not know, Brother Lever, that in addition to the usual capitalist influences in our unions today, there is also developing a definite fascist tendency among the higher officials. You should know these things, and you should know that by endorsing the Johnston scheme, you are indirectly supporting every influence in American trade unionism that would destroy our organizations as the Italian and German trade unions are being destroyed. Running away from the fight. The masses of union members in the railroad and metal industries, where the collaboration schemes are being pushed, are just beginning to take stock after terrible defeats and struggles against the bosses. They're tired and discouraged. They're sick of the old tactics and leadership that brought disaster, and they demand a change. Progressives and revolutionaries have been receiving great audiences, explaining the program of amalgamation, industrial unionism, militant leadership, political action through a labor party, and all the measures that alone can lead forward from defeat toward victory. More than half the membership of the railroad unions have demanded amalgamation as the result of this great campaign. But the officials are sabotaging amalgamation. They are cleverly endeavoring to turn the weariness and disillusionment of the masses into the channels of class collaboration. They sing the siren songs of industrial peace under a scheme where the workers will get all they want without fighting for it. Of course, the workers do not want to fight if they can obtain their demands otherwise, and a few of them, even such intelligent men as Brother Lever, fall under the influence of the collaboration opium. They run away from the fight, not realizing that they are preparing for themselves and for the whole labor movement, a struggle a thousand times more bitter when the working class finally awakens to find itself betrayed and helpless in the hands of the capitalists. That's the end of the third piece. Very nice articles overall. This is again before Browder became a renegade. I like his viewpoint here. I'd vote for the guy. So again, we have established that he understands the consequences of class collaboration. Now again, this isn't exactly the same as at the end of World War II, where we're talking about sort of peaceful coexistence and the U.S. just accepting the existence of the USSR and so on. In other words, the class struggle on the international stage. But the underlying principles are basically the same, as we will elaborate on when we get to the later pieces. So, several more pieces from Browder to come, then we'll get back into Marxism-Leninism versus Revisionism, which is where William Z. Foster leads the charge against Browderism, and then critics of both Browderism and the reconstituted CPUSA. But for now, what do you think? Leave a question or comment below. We'll continue the discussion in the comments section as always. But for now, thanks for listening, and thanks to the current patrons whose names are on the screen. If you'd like to get your name on the screen, head to patreon.com slash socialismforall or buymeacoffee.com slash socialismforall. You can sign up for a few dollars a month or more, whatever you see fit. All support is encouraging. It's also materially helpful and allows me to spend more time 
planning, producing, and promoting the content. So if you like the channel, thank me, but also thank a patron or buy me a coffee supporter and consider becoming one yourself. Beyond that, engagement counts. So like, share, subscribe, leave a comment, even if it's just thanks, good video, or random letters. This will stimulate the algorithm to recommend this video and this channel to more viewers. And as capitalism prepares to head into probably another massive crisis in the next few years, we need to get this content into the hands of more and more working people. So thanks for that. And finally, remember that agitation and education can be done at least in part online like this, but the organizing, agitate, educate, organizing, needs to happen in real life. So as you go, into your local left organizations, whether it's in your city or if you're in a more rural area, your state, county, regional, or national organization. Remember what you learned here. Take it with you. Vote accordingly when your organization comes up with internal questions. Let it help you to analyze topics for debate and discussion. Revisionism is always a potential threat. It is the entrance of bourgeois ideas into the communist movement, and we always have to be on guard for it. That said, there's also a lot of forward progress that we can make, so get out there, intensify class struggle, and we will see you in the next video.